Speaking of time, I know Kevin has to be done by one. Yep. Okay, so so shall roll. we get going? Yeah. Let's roll. Yeah. And we'll repeat some of the stuff sound. we've already said. <laughs> well, I mean, what what is the pre-show for but getting a cold open and talking about what we're going to talk about? Oh, what are we going to talk about? Oh, wait, we're going to talk about what we want to talk about. That's the whole episode. Yeah. <laughs> we will. Yeah, I mean, that's we're just going to randomly talk out of our asses like we always do. <laughs> I would say, what else is new? Welcome to Preferred Enemies, the Warhammer 40k podcast. It's just going to talk about what we're going to talk about, and that's what we always do. I'm your host, Rob. Kevin. Dennis. And Richard. And, uh, yeah, we are all back together. Yay! <sighs> and uh, we're we're going to do a little bit of a briefer episode uh, this week. A little bit. It's, it, I mean, we're still going to have a good conversation. Uh, and we're basically going to kind of talk about the state of the game right now like where is the game sitting as far as like the meta how's the competitive scene looking and, and what are our takes on, on playing ninth edition because that you know dennis you've gone to uh iron halo you've, yes. you've actually like is this your first big event since covid Yes, I, I went to a store tournament that had like 16 people, but this was the first big event of over 100 people. And I know you're going to the Austin event in November, I believe. Yep, Austin US Open. That's it's. I don't, I, I'm looking forward to it, but I'm also scared because one-day events make me tired. Two-day events really make my back hurt, and so this is a three-day event. Let's see how well I hold up. <laughs> You need a training montage. You, I think you really do, and I think it's it's called just just playing more in those long full day events just to get your body used to standing. And for me, it's not just standing; it's because people say, "Oh, you stand all," but it's like the bending over at the waist to move miniatures, and <laughs> I think that's what gets me. Yep, yep. You definitely need an eighty style training montage for this. Uh, but yes, we're going to be talking about the the state of the game, but. Uh, before that, uh, we're going to talk news, new releases, and your listener mail. Uh, news and new releases is actually pretty light. Um, last week is when the new uh, kill rig, like the kill rig kit for orcs, went up for pre-order, along with the pain boss and the beast boss on Squigasaur. Uh, this week, it was primarily Aeronautica Imperialis with the Space Marines versus Eldar set. So if you like tiny little planes, there's a new new box set for that. Uh, other than that, the McFarlane, a couple of new McFarlane action figures went up for pre-order, including a, a Necron Flayed one in both regular and artist-proof version, and then a Bloody Rose uh, Sister Battle. Okay, I'll interject here. I went to the Citadel yesterday, and they actually had all three out for sale. Oh, nice. And they oh, surprised, really? They surprised me on how they look, because I don't know. I thought they would have, like, shorter legs and be kind of more model-esque type, but they, they definitely felt like a very McFarlane interpretation, but they still all looked really good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I find the colors on them a little flat, but that's what the Artist Proofs versions are for, for people to really paint up nicely. I can agree with that. Yeah. And then uh, the only other thing that was of of real note, I think, is that uh, as we've been seeing more Black Templar reveals, they revealed that Chaplain Grimaldus has gone Primaris, and we're getting a new plastic Chaplain Grimaldus kit. Yeah. And I am very happy that they included his uh, Cenobite Servitors and, and redid those in plastic as well. And so... I'm, I, if I still played Templars, he would definitely <laughs> be a pickup for me because he, he just, he looks fantastic. It, and I think they did a good job of capturing like the feel of the old metal slash fine cast model in plastic. So he looks great. Everything that comes with him looks great. I'm, I, I think he's cool looking. And, you know, you know, once I got my Grimaldus built and painted, he was always one of my favorite models to use in Black Templars. So definitely. Glad to see him updated, but yeah, that's it. It's a it's been kind of a slow release week, and I I we're pa- we're just past like a big Age of Sigmar release with like their two battle tomes, and we're between Codex releases, which is kind of a nice breather space to be in. So <laughs> yeah, and I don't know if that's because they've been focusing on getting ready for like some more of the U.S. Open events, or if it's just we're we're adding natural lull, but we know there's at least three more codexes slash supplements coming out because we've got Black Templars coming out later this year, and then unnamed Imperium and unnamed Xenos codexes before the end of 2021, which is seems to be a very intense release cycle with just over. Like or just under three months left because right. we are obviously only three days into October when we're recording this. Well, and then we're also going to have like the big like holiday bundles and stuff like that. So, yeah, there's stuff coming up. So it's kind of nice to have a little bit of a lull right now. Yep. So yeah, like I said, news and new releases real short. Uh, and yeah, as always, new uh, more stuff is getting uh, released to Warhammer Plus. Apparently, after the fifth episode of Angels of Death, they're put it, they're putting it on a bit of a break till like November, so like a, like a month off. And I mean, they're still rolling out, but they also released a uh, trailer for like the next three episodes of uh, Hammer and Bolter. Right. So like, we're getting more stuff. They're not releasing animation stuff every week, but they're still putting out new shows every week because they're doing, they're really starting to roll out lore masters now. They're doing more painting tutorials, battle reports. So they're still, they still have content. But if you were coming hoping that they'd have like Disney Plus or Netflix level, like bingeable animated series at, right out the gate, no, that's not the case. And it's slowed down a little bit. But they're also working with very small animation studios, so that's probably to be understood. Right. Uh, so, yeah, just, you know, that is still ongoing. So, again, we're at once our year of Warhammer Plus is up, we will uh, give you kind of the has it has it been worth it? Has it been worthwhile? But uh, so we'll, we'll see how it goes. But with that, we'll transition over to listener mail. Uh, as always, these letters are written by you, the listeners. And uh, when we're done with the segment, we'll tell you how you can get your letter read on the air. So our first one is from John from the UK. And uh, he writes, hi, guys, this is John in the UK. Uh, question, if you were a Games Workshop rules writer, what changes would you make to the Tyranid faction to enable them to compete with the likes of Adeptus Mechanicus, Sisters, Drukari, etc., rather than bumping along at the bottom of the competitive rankings? Stay safe. 
I had like two thoughts uh, initially. I haven't spent a whole lot of time thinking about it, but I would like the idea of Shadows in the Warp to be like really scary mm-hmm. and just make it be an aura ability that turned off enemy aura abilities. Ooh, that would that would actually be pretty good. And then the other thing that I would want to do is beef up the Swarm Lord and and give him like an ability where after he dies, he comes back like a bunch of the other leader characters kind of have, right? Uh, my thought actually would be rather than making it like a roll to see if he comes back, like make him automatically come back once, but like it's delayed, like he gets removed as a casualty, but then your next movement phase, he gets set back up. And you put him, like, at the top of his bottom, like, bracket of wounds, but then he acts like he's at the top bracket. Okay. Yeah. So easy to kill, but fully functional. Right. Okay. Yeah, no, I like that. Reflecting, you know, that whole, like, he comes, he always comes back and he's stronger, right? Mm Mm-hmm. No, I I dig that. A couple other things I was thinking. Oh, go ahead, Kevin. That was Dennis, but sure. <laughs> oh, sorry, Dennis. Uh, Dennis, one, Dennis, one of you. Like, go ahead. One of us. Um, I, I kind of like what somewhat Richard said there of, I think they need to stay thematic. So Shadows of the Warp is definitely a place that they can strengthen things up on. And I mean, my first thought was, well, let's make it like the Sisters of Silence, where it's just like, I can't be affected and all that. But I'm like, no, eh, probably not, because that would kind of steal their shtick. Um but maybe and more like, like, and also like just making shadows in the warp be anti psyker is also just kind of a, yeah, like it makes it good against certain armies, but yeah. then makes it useless right. against other armies. Right. Right. So, so here's what my thoughts could probably be is I like, I like the idea of turning off auras, but make it like, a leadership penalty, like for all the units that have it. Um, just if you're around here and as your leadership just goes down and then maybe have them have a, um, command, not command stratagem where you don't get rerolls on your leadership stuff. So then that way that, that eeriness of the Tyranids coming to get you really feels like things are going to like break or run a lot more than because, like, Space Marines kind of ignore things, which they should be good, but Tyranids should be kind of scary, even to them. Yeah. Uh, and, and then the other part, I would say, is um, Synapse. Synapse is the other big thing Tyranids have. And in the past, it was kind of like, oh, you're fearless, but you have to stay here and do stuff. I would rather see Synapse be more of, like, a buff to encourage the Tyranids to stay within Synapse. Like maybe give them more attacks if they're in synapse or I don't know some other buff that I can't think of right now. But just play up shadows of the warp and synapse to make them stay thematic and but still kind of buff them up so they're fun to play and good to use. Yeah, I I had always had like the the idea of like this was an old way that I would have redone synapse. And I think it would still kind of work, but like, cause they used to have instinctual behaviors, which were things that would 
force them to act a certain way when they weren't within synapse. But, like, bring back, like, the instinctual uh, behavior keywords, but make that be, like, the keyword that makes synapse give what their, like, buff would be from being in synapse. So, like, the stuff that wants to feed, they get more attacks. And the the stuff that wants to shoot, you know, they get, like, plus one to their, you know, to hit rolls. Or, you know, something like that. Mm-hmm. That could be an interesting way of doing it, yeah. Well, and if you're talking about competing with something like Admech or Drukari, I mean, you could make the argument there that what GW needs to do is make rules that tone them down. But uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, otherwise, <laughs> like... Looking at some of the, the builds, and this kind of will get into our main topic, but uh, there's a couple of things, like just giving a, the Tyranid Codex a, a brief overview. Like one thing I would definitely do is give their their flyers, like the Harpy and Hivecrone, the same treatment that we saw the... Uh, oh, God. Heldrake? Go. That... Yeah, that we saw the Heldrake get in the Thousand Suns Codex, where it's an honest-to-goodness flyer that is good at killing other flyers, even in Assault. Which, considering that like one of the big builds right now is Mechanicus Planes, um, having having your own flyers that are as hard to hit... Because that's one of the things that they have problems with and that the Heldrake had problems with, is you didn't have any of the, the abilities to be hard to hit, hard to assault, so anybody could just get you. It, but by making them actually act like flyers, make, act like aircraft, uh, that would go a long way to making them a bit harder to kill and making them be a good counter to, to some flyer shenanigans. Um, other things I would do is it, it's tricky to figure out because like fluff wise, like if you're playing like blobs of gaunts, whether they're hormigons or termigons, it's like they're big blobs, but they're also they they're very squishy and you don't yeah. necessarily want to make them not squishy, but I think one of their problems is their damage output can be so low because they'll tend to die. Be- like even the termagants, they tend to die before they can get into range of enough stuff to really bring their forces to bear. Even with the uh, devourers there, you know, that's an 18 yeah. inch range, mm-hmm. which yep. on the smaller table is okay, but I would figure out ways to either give their guns a boost or uh, like, I think it's, uh, it's a high fleet Jormungandr that gives them like, lets them act like they're in cover. I th- kind of think yeah. Gaunts need something like that all the time. Yeah. They're so, they, they kind of hunker so low to the ground anyway. Yeah. They would... need ways to survive, to get into position to do real damage. Right. But that that's kind of, those are the things that, that I, th- I thought about. And there's actually a build right now, like, so uh, Goonhammer, and we'll be uh, kind of referring back to this a little bit in the main segment, but Goonhammer has a list of what are currently the active, like, what are the top uh, competitive builds? And, like, they have criteria on it has to at least uh, finish in the top four at, or the top, it has to have at least three top four finishes at events of GT scale or bigger has to be played by at least two different players. And you have to show that there are multiple people playing it beyond that. And one of the lists they had was, uh, the Kronos and Kraken list. Uh, 
Kraken Swarm Lord, usually with a unit of Gene Stealers and some other big nasties, riding shotgun provides fast pressure and some janky combat tricks to keep the enemy locked down. While that's being dealt with, Kronos Hiveguard unit using single-minded annihilation to double shoot and an Exocrine taking full advantage of Symbiostorm to grind the enemy down. The true glory days of this build are past, but it still works and it's the best things Nids can put on the table. So uh, this one was like the Brood Lord, Swarm Lord, uh, Gene Stealers... Like a unit of 17 Gene Stealers, uh, 10 Hormigaunts, 30 Devour, uh, Devourer Termigaunts, a couple of Lictors, a Pyrovore, believe it or not, a <laughs> uh, pair of Ravener units, some Sky Slasher Swarms, which is one you don't see very often. And yeah. then that's the Kraken Detachment. And then a Kronos Patrol of a Neurothrope, some Ripper Swarms. Two units of six hive guard and an exocrine. Yeah, that's interesting. Cause I mean, gosh, are sky slashers even? I thought they were legends now because they don't make models for sky slashers. And I, I don't, I don't know that Forge World has them anymore. They're probably they must be in the Forge World book. Yep, they're in they're in the uh, Imperial Armor book. They're they're still available they st- on on Forge World. $38 for three. And the Malamthorpe's back in stock. And I see the Dimercarian is temporarily out of stock, but at least not gone forever. There was a per- period where it looked like yeah. it might be gone. But, but uh, yeah, I know the, the Dimercarian, like double or tr- even triple Dimercarians was kind of a, a, some Tyranid tech that people were rolling with for a while, too. So Yeah. But yeah, it sounds like really they just, they need more ways to... Either, you know, to apply counters to... Because, like, yeah, if you can shut down aura abilities, that's very powerful. And that would put a lot of pressure on some of these armies that stack bu- stack buffs to try to make the best possible unit. I mean, like, that's what my sisters were doing last night. I'd have, like, mm-hmm. buffs from, like, a Re- Repentant Superior and a Canonist or more of Vol to, you know, up, you know, to to get maximum uh, output out of like my repentia and being able to just shut that down. Yeah. Would be huge. Yes. And, and not to be like, this isn't really rules wise, but it's, it's model wise. Like I would bring back the, the wonderful, like mobile synapse unit that was the Tyranid Shrikes. (laughs) <laughs> yes like but they'd need to make models for them so there's that but yeah john hopefully this gives you an idea of kind of where where our minds are as as what nids would need to to have a you know a good place to stand on and also a lot of that's going to come down to points balance too and figuring out how this all works out especially because you know tier nids were designed for a larger battlefield they were designed for like eighth edition and they weren't amazing in eighth edition either. So I, I think there's going to have to be some like fundamental changes without losing the flavor of the army. But I think looking into the fluff and what it does and uh, trying to mirror that with like upgrades to like shadows and the warp and things like that, and just bringing some of their other units in line with what the new design philosophy is would go a long way. 
All right. Next letter is a uh, follow-up from Martin Crawley, who wrote into us last episode. And Martin writes, hey, guys, thanks for answering my last question and putting any misgivings I had to rest. Many thanks. Uh, he was asking about, is it uh, about like if you're playing in a team event and you don't get to play the army you want because somebody kind of higher ranked in the team has picked that army and you can't like double up on it. Is there anything wrong with that? And we're like, no, nah, no, nah, it's totally fine. It's totally cool. Anyway, he continues. As for pronouncing Kupla Falkel in Irish, I've actually heard worse from fellow countrymen, so thumbs up from me. So there you go, Irishman. I can pronounce your language better than you can. <laughs> it's the only time you're ever going to hear me say that. <laughs> uh, that is going to bite me in the ass. Karma is a bitch. So oh yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna take the win with quiet dignity and grace and move on. <laughs> well, it's the first time for everything. <laughs> as, as, <laughs> hey, I have lost many a game with quiet dignity and grace. What are you talking about? Right. Yeah, it just it says first time you take a win with quiet dignity and grace. It's fine. Fair. Fair. <laughs> just because I've beaten you. Well, I, haven't we both beaten each other in the, the games where we've been matched up against each other? Yeah, we've, we've like, kind of just run around and beat on each other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, he continues. As previously mentioned, me and my partner are expecting our first child in a few weeks, and I'm wondering how some of you went about making time for hobbying inside the first months or years of having kids. Whether that's not painting so that you can play or vice versa, did you have to put or did you have to put the brakes on the hobby entirely for a while? P.S. I'm trying to convince her that Sanguinius is the perfect boy's name, but she isn't having it. Can you let her know the benefits of being named after the greatest being in the Imperium's history? I know she'll give in hearing it from some professionals like yourselves. Thanks again. Ooh, I don't know if I want to touch that one with a 10-foot pole. I don't want to get involved in naming someone else's baby. That just that doesn't end well. Although I will say... Sanguinius and his descendants haven't ended up so completely stable, so uh, that's going to be a solid strike against. Um, yeah, but uh, I just think about all the all the kids who or like all the kids who were named Khaleesi while uh, Game of Thrones was airing, and then season eight aired, and suddenly like how many name change forms went out. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> so, so I'm just I'm just saying, be careful what you wish for. Uh, as, and as far as uh, how to hobby when you have a child, I guess this one is is for me since I'm the one who has kids. Um, no, I think we can all chime in on this. Okay, well, yeah, you can, I, I feel I feel you can all you can all make uh, you're all allowed to make commentary. It's just I, I'm the one who actually yeah, has experience, yeah, exactly. so you're feel you're free to uh, content on my commentary and tell me how wrong I am. Just you know to mess with me, that's fine. Um, but anyway, uh, for me, it's actually funny that uh, 40k was what I switched to to be more available at home when our first kid was born because before that I'd been big into like playing uh, World of Warcraft and so I'd be at the computer for uh, several hours at a time and just not kind of mentally checked out and not available and so when our first kid was born um, that's when like I was focusing on 
like I was building my towel and painting my towel. And that was something where I could just sit, I could work for a little bit, but I could still be present. So if help was needed, I could get up and go. And it also wasn't time demanding the way that like an MMO where I'm like, I'm interacting with other real people uh, where I needed to be like, I'd have to be on someone else's schedule so I could be there to help my partner with our kid. Now, when it came to actually playing, that became a matter of like just careful scheduling and like figuring out when is it okay for me to take a break? Like when it, when did she have everything under control? When did she have uh, other family coming around to help so that, you know, because she understood that I needed my time as well. So it's a lot of it is communication. A lot of it is. I, I would say, like, if you have the habit of, like, oh, I play in a league every week, or like, I go to the store like two or three times a week to play. Yeah, you're gonna have to, you're gonna have to put the brakes on it, but that doesn't mean you're gonna have to stop. It just means you're gonna have to, you'll have to reel it in a bit, and you'll have to be able to be more present. So I guess, you know, you said not painting, so you can play, or vice versa. Maybe not playing as much. And putting a little bit more time into the hobby aspect, because again, the hobby aspect doesn't take your time away. Like you can, you can be in the middle of painting something, set it down, go help out. And then when everything is taken care of and your partner's, you know, settled in and comfortable, then you can go back and pick up where you left off. So a lot of it is just scheduling. Also, depending on like what you do hobby wise, there were things I was very careful of. Like when I, when we had our first kid, I was like I said, I was working on Tau, and one of the things people were really starting to talk about at that time was magnetizing your crisis suits so that you uh, could do weapon swaps and things like that. And I didn't, and one of the reasons I did not was because I did not feel comfortable working with rare earth metal magnets, very small magnets that I could accidentally drop on the floor when I had a small child who will crawl around and try to put anything into her mouth. Cause that's <laughs> magnets are very, very bad for, for small children. Um, so that was something like, and that may not apply to you with, with what you're building, but that like, it's just being cognizant of like making sure that I'm being very careful with my hobby stuff that it's put away. Like hobby knives are out of, are, are not readily accessible, uh, Paints are put away, you know, just keeping stuff out of the reach of small children is something to be aware of. But the biggest thing is communication and making yourself available. And yes, there will be a change up and eventually things will settle down and you'll get more into it. Uh, You know, you'll be able to get kind of back into uh, it won't be the same as before. It never will be because your life has changed. Something something new has happened and you have a new person that is demanding of your time and love and attention as well they should be and so what your hobby schedule looks like and your gaming schedule looks like now will not be the same probably ever again until that until your kids are like old enough that they're really self-sufficient so you're in for the long haul but it's it doesn't necessarily mean you have to put the brakes on everything for like an extended period of time like i was playing in events like one day like rtt's within the first year of my kid being born and 
I, I wasn't necessarily like org, and I think I was actually starting to organize events uh, within you know by the time she was like two or three, and then we had her second kid a couple of years after that, and at that point, like we had kind of figured out what the like what the flow of everything was, and so it's like it's really learning during your first kid what how it you know how everything's gonna go. So just yeah, just be aware of what your time constraints are going to be and you and be flexible because things get unpredictable once you you know once you have a kid because you know everybody you know it's a, it's a living breathing person that you're interacting with this is not somebody who's going to work on any schedule also like if your kid is, has trouble sleeping it's like when like once you get them to sleep you may not be able to sleep for a bit sometimes work you know if you can do hobby hobby stuff at weird hours just kind of be available things like that or just like well i'm up i might as well put a little bit of paint on models or you know get another model put together you, you know you sometimes you can take advantage of the fact that your schedule's disrupted and and just kind of work it into that so uh, there's a lot of ways to uh to approach it but the biggest thing is just you know make yourself available and communicate and and deter and remember that you both do have have needs. Uh, kind of set yours aside, a li- like the emphasis on yours aside for a little bit, but that doesn't mean you have to give it up. Just be flexible, be willing to give, and before you know it, you'll be starting to get back into a new schedule where you're you're getting games in again. You're 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 free to paint and build stuff. But you're going to have other things that are going to take up your time, too. And you're going to have to... It's all trade-off. And then our final letter is from Ross Wyand. Uh, Ross writes, Hello, Preferred Enemies. I'm a longtime listener and first-time writer. Well, welcome to the show, Ross. Uh, Gotta say, I love the show and everything you do all for the hobby. I've decided to take the plunge into Armies on Parade for 2022, but I'm having some trouble brainstorming ideas for the display board. Where do you guys draw inspiration and ideas for the displays you have made in the past? I'm planning on making a display for my Orc Army, either Speed Freaks or Dread Mob. Thanks for the help. Keep up the great work. Best regards, Ross Wyand from Richmond, Virginia. So I don't know if any of us have made like big display boards. Like I know none of us have entered armies on parade. I remember my first display board. It was at the first Renegade Open I went to. We went to a a store up there and I got a cork board thing and put my army on it. Uh, Don't do that. (laughs) Don't. I mean, it worked. (laughs) No, I I think the way to take inspiration is, is come up with a story. Yeah. What is the story about your army? And then try and bring that story to life. Cause some of the coolest ones I've seen have, you, you can just look at it and you see a story. And a lot of those came from games day when we went there in, yeah. in Memphis. And like, I still remember the Necron tomb world. That was just amazing. Just to see all the Necrons there with the lights and the mirrors, just to make them look like they were infinitely just in stasis there. It, oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think if you're going to do like a Speed Freak specifically, I think there's a lot that are like kind of obvious and and I think would be kind of simple to do. Like you could easily do like just uh, a stretch of highway and put all of your, you know, your your vehicles on on a road and, you know, make kind of a landscape like that. You can do a wasteland type thing, um, you know, where you make it look all Mad Max and just do kind of desert. And like that doesn't require a lot of like additional features or things like that you just put some stuff on the board and then it's a little bit easier to trans to transport as well you don't have to worry about like scale and up and things 
or if you were really crazy and want to go all out, make the backdrop like one of those real things and have it like mm-hmm. spin or like go so it looks like they're actually like the background's changing as they're driving. That would be cool. That might yeah, be a lot. That though, would be, but <laughs> that would be really cool actually. Yeah, because you do like um yeah, you do it like sideways where you have them driving like right right, you know, left to right. And then yeah, you just have like a thing in the back that change oh, that would be really cool. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. kind of hard or, to pull off, but or or even just like the the Fury Road poster where they're like out running, like just mm-hmm. a big like cottony swab that you like paint, you know, dusty yeah. brown, and so they're like out running the storm. Yeah, <laughs> I know the the orc display board that like I and I still haven't gotten around to doing the little tape but like it's just it's like supposed to be like mech workshop themed and so like i have like this like black like rubber mat on a you know a poster frame and it's gonna have uh like the yellow like striped like you know caution tape around around the edges and that's just a really simple thing that like kind of fits the theme of the army mm-hmm. that I liked that wasn't too, you know, complex and, you know, is easy to transport. Yeah. that That's one thing that when, now when you're, you're talking like armies on parade, that's, you're generally taking that like to your local GW store. So it's not like, but even then you're still transporting it. You're not building it there. So like come up with something that is modular that you can, Either either something that you can transport as a whole piece very securely, or that something you can transport that's in several pieces that you can assemble on site. Um, that's how I've seen like some of the the people who do like like the high end painting challenges or like painting competitions at tournaments will do for their board is they'll have like it'll be in like two or three pieces. Like it'll have a baseboard and then a few pieces in the background that they can assemble together. Um, like uh, one example I've seen, this one was more for a, a Dark Angels Ravenwing army, but somebody locally built a, like they built up this big rock, like rock wall, and then put like garage doors into it that were open and then had like some road coming out of that. So like, you know, so like they're rolling out of the garage. So you could do something, you know, you can do something like that. But he built it out of like insulate, like pink insulation foam. And so he had it, I I want to say in like a couple of tiers that he could bring and then stack up. Mm-hmm. And when he put it all together, it looked seamless. But it was easier to travel with because he could pack each piece separately. Um, And yeah, but sometimes as simple as like I know – the, you know, armies on parade. It's like the idea is it's the two foot by two foot, and that was based off of like the realm of battleboard sections that they were selling at the time when they first like really made it a store competition. Um, and so like you can easily just start with that, or you can uh, build up on it with terrain. Uh, for <clears throat> as far as like inspiration for things I've wanted to do. Like I looked at the basing that I was doing for my sisters where I'm using these like resin bases that have like the church floor and fleur-de-lis like etched into them. And so for my sister's display board at the time, what I did was I found I found a pre-cut like fleur-de-lis at a hobby like like a Michaels or Hobby Lobby style hobby store. 
And I just put that on a cork board, uh, like carved some cracks into it to make it look like it was stonework that had cracked. And then just painted the whole thing gray, dry brushed it with a lighter gray. And that was my very basic display board, but it it fit with the theme of my army. And so that's like, you know, look at what you're doing with your basing and see if you can fit that into your theme. Because if you can fit your basing into your display board theme, uh, you can really, like, that'll really help unify everything together. So, like, you can take that as an inspiration. And as I've also transitioned to using more of, like, the the modular carry trays that, like, Hammerhead Games or Frontline Gaming sells, where it's, like, laser-cut wood that you assemble on site, and sometimes you can put a mat in it. I've tried to figure out things that can, like, clip to the sides of that that I could bring with me to create verticality. Because, like, for my sisters, I would love to be able to do, like, a cathedral front, that I could put on the back of the the carry tray so mm-hmm. that like when I'm carrying the army around, I don't have that with me. But when I set it up for like paint judging, I could snap that into place and then have like the whole scene set up. And I've also thought about doing that for my towel, like do a, like a, a battle scene in the back and just slot that into place. So like sometimes the ideas can just be like, figure out like, like, come up with an image or look at your basing or come up with a theme like the, the mech workshop or the fury road or something like that. And then just figure out how, like what are some simple ways even to, to just to kind of represent that. Like some, like, yes, you can go all out with tiny details and armies and parade loves that. But sometimes if you can just create, like bring together a cohesive theme that can go a long way. Uh, something when when I saw like Speed Freaks, the first thing that popped into my mind was like a hot rod show, like all these vehicles lined up with guys standing in front showing them off. So like that's, I've also seen uh, people doing like orky gas stations and things like that, mm-hmm. where they've actually like built up a hut. And with some of the mech, the mech boy terrain they have, that would actually be really easy to incorporate into a board as well. And that would work for either the Dread Mob or the Speed Freaks. That, yeah, that's true. Like you could, and that would give you like, you could build one display board and then swap armies. And then as long as it's like, again, as if your basing is consistent, that, that's a good way. And uh, I mean, you could even go the extra mile. I've seen people do the thing where they like, they cut holes in the the display board for the bases so everything slots in and then just looks kind of seamless uh which is a really cool way to do it um although the how much variance you have on on the the spacing on that and when you've only got sometimes when you've only got two foot by two foot you need and especially with something like orcs you need to be able to cram everything in there as much as you can trying to do that may not (laughs) leave you with much of a surface but yeah, you know, how we find inspiration is just like think about a theme, think of an image from a movie or story that you want to try to represent. Look at your like think about your basing and like what have you done with your army to try to and try to bring that together. There's a lot of directions you can go, a lot of places you can pull ideas from um and so yeah, those are all just just some ideas from people who have never actually entered armies on parade and mm-hmm. are generally impressed by the work that's done there. So <laughs> 
And if you have a question for us, whether it's about how to manage life in games or hobbying ideas, game rules suggestions, or game rules questions, suggestions, feedback, etc., uh, there's three good ways to get that to us. Uh, first off is you can email. So email our email address is ourfirstnames at preferredenemies.com. So Rob at, Kevin at, Dennis at, Richard at, or ourfirstnames at preferredenemies.com. Uh, second is Facebook. We're at facebook.com slash preferred enemies. You can like us there, follow us, uh, see what we're doing, uh, get updates on upcoming episodes, our take on big news, things like that. Third is Twitter, or we are at twitter.com slash preferred enemy, singular. And we take comments, questions from all those sources, put them together, throw them in the hopper, and read through as many as we can. Uh, in an episode. Uh, and right now the hopper is empty. So if you want to get your letter into the next episode, now's the perfect time. So get those in and we'll get them on the air as soon as we can. Uh, also, if you want to help support the show, uh, we do have a Patreon. We are patreon.com slash preferred enemy. Although if you have the funds to support the show, uh, we do prefer that you start by supporting your local community, uh, whether that is through helping at food banks, rent funds, uh, even just doing things like shopping at local stores and helping support local businesses. All of those things really help to use your wargaming powers for awesome and make your community better. But after that, if you still want to help support the show, uh, we basically use Patreon as our online tip jar because we don't lock any of our content behind a paywall. And that basically serves as um, funding for our hosting. It helps send uh, – now that events are really starting to, to gear up again, it's helped send us to events. You guys helped pay f- – actually, you guys did pay for Dennis's hotel room for the Iron Halo. And you Appreciate helped that. pay for a new microphone. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you did. <laughs> And uh, it helps pay for new microphones when uh, we need, uh, like, a gear replacement. And it covers just all the various expenses that the show comes up with. We don't really make money on the show. But that's not what the show is about. Uh, but you – thanks to all of you, we are able to continue doing the show and, and doing the things that you like hearing us do. So if you want to do that and help out, even if it's just a dollar a month, enough people put in a dollar. It does really add up and help out. All right, so we're going to go ahead and take a break for sponsor identification, and when we come back, we'll be talking about our main topic, which is the state of the game for Warhammer 40k in the fall of 2021. See you in a bit. Miniatures. We build them, we paint them, we love them. That's why we also want to get them to the battle and back again safely. And that's where Kara Multicase comes in. They offer a complete model storage and transport system. They offer a wide selection of core trays for standard size miniatures, as well as custom cut trays for specific models. KR's trays are made of a soft foam, available in a variety of colors, that won't scratch or snag your models. And to protect the foam, the trays are carried in easily stackable, swappable cardboard cases. They also offer a full range of Kaiser bags, backpacks, and aluminum cases for transporting your KR cases. You can even choose from pre-built tray selections to suit your army, or use the Autofill app to find just the right trays for your particular force. Whatever your game, 40K, X-Wing, Warm Hordes, or Historicals, KR Multicase has the cases to fit your needs. You can find out more at krmulticase.com. KR Multicase, soft foam for your figures, hard cases for the soft foam. Are you tired of playing on a boring battlefield? Do you want to step up the quality of your gaming table and make your battle look real? 
then you need to check out the battle mats from Game Mat. Their professionally designed rubber-based mats are just what your gaming table needs. Available in a variety of styles, with everything from rolling grasslands to urban war zones, winter wastelands to alien deserts, there's a Game Mat mat to fit any kind of terrain. Their mats are padded, anti-slip, waterproof, and when you're done rolling dice and battling on your mat, just roll it up and stick it in the convenient carrying bag for easy transport and storage. And if you don't have a gaming table, they've got you covered with their folding Gboard portable gaming area and their line of pre-painted resin terrain. If you're ready to upgrade your gaming table, head over to www.gamemat.eu and find the gaming mat that's right for you. Game Mat, giving your armies the battlefield they deserve. And we're back, and that means it's time for our main topic, which is the state of the game of Warhammer 40,000 as of October 3rd, 2021. Um, obviously, large events have started happening again now that uh, you know vaccination rates are going up and people are getting more comfortable with the procedures that need to be put in place to keep these events safe. So whether events are requiring masks or proof of vaccination, um, I've seen some even large magic events in Vegas where they've had both a vaccine mandate and a mask requirements, but those events are going off without hitches otherwise. So, you know, we're, we're getting large events happening again, which means we're getting more and more GT data in. We're getting, you know, you know, seeing the, the events that are, or seeing the the kinds of lists that are winning big events uh, as we get back into it. And uh, before we get into that level, uh, let's talk about our own little experiences playing. Um, Kevin and I got in our first 2,000 point. Like, well, not my first 2,000 point. I've played a small... <laughs> I played like a, an RTT back in June with Death Guard, but we played... Uh, I played my first 2,000-point game with New Sisters against Kevin last night. Now that I actually have a room, I could set up a semi-permanent gaming table in, which is very nice to have. Right. Uh, and so it was – we were slow. We were a bit rusty. But it uh, it was good to kind of get a feel for, um, like, the, the mission structure because games in 9th edition with the, the way secondaries – secondary missions are selected and everything that makes that makes a big difference and the emphasis on objectives like holding objectives on the table rather than focusing so much on killing i think has really changed the way that we've approached the game because back in eighth edition Mm -hmm. we were still a lot of times going off like itc style missions which might involve kill like depending on what you picked could involve and not that we didn't pick secondaries that involved killing things. I think we both did to an extent, but it seems that, you know, objectives are even a bigger part of the game than they were before. But even with that, we're still seeing a lot of emphasis on like alpha strike capabilities, to just cripple your opponent early on. But uh, like our game did not really like, I had a very ineffectual alpha strike. <laughs> <laughs> right. Versus versus Death Guard? No. No. <laughs> I know. <laughs> the sad thing is the things I was trying to kill didn't even have disgustingly resilient, so I have no excuse. Ah. Uh, right. Dice? 
Yeah, he just failed to pop rhinos. Bad dice. <laughs> but like, like how how was your take on how this felt compared to like what we have played in the past? Yeah, I mean the 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 this the feel of the missions is definitely different. Um, having having to track and remember all the secondaries um, is 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 more complicated. Um, but I do like the mix of like progressive and end end of game scoring, uh, which I think helps kind of balance it out. It it gives it kind of that um, asymmetrical battlefield feeling that like the good you know the good years of the renegade open missions did where it's like okay yeah we're we're both trying to do a primary the same primary but our secondaries are different like what what we're trying to do is a little bit different um and not necessarily exactly the same so i i like that it gives you a little more battlefield control by being able to pick those out um you know and i i will say this i really liked the um the way that like the mission setups are done were like the table layout and like the, the, you know, telling you exactly like, here's where the markers go. Here's the deployment zone. Here's this, here's this, like the setup of the, of the game has been streamlined a lot, not having to do seizes, not having, you know, it's just roll for this, pick attacker, defender, pick your deployment. You know, it, it, that all seemed like it was a much more streamlined setup process, which I liked. Agreed. Agreed. It was very, it was very easy to get started. Um, I think as we will play more picking secondaries, will go a lot faster. Um, that, that is yeah. something. And especially even that they've changed the secondaries between the last time we played ninth edition and this, cause I think the last tournament I played in, they had like grand tournament 2021 had just come out. So they weren't using it yet or was just about to come out. So this was also my first run with these, these particular missions. And I'll toss out two things about the secondaries. Um, one, it's nice they both either specify command phase or um, end of like end of phase to score them. So they kind of yeah. built mm-hmm. that into the phases so you know. Because I know Kevin, you said there's a lot to track. There, there is, but at least they've kind of built in when to do that extra tracking. And the other thing about secondaries yeah. is you can kind of like once you build your army. You can kind of plan out your secondaries for the most part. And I, I mm-hmm. would suggest picking three that are like for your army in case the enemy doesn't give you any. But then like if they have a bunch of characters, yeah, toss one out. Say I'm going to toss this one out to go to assassinate or I'll toss this one out to go to Titan Hunter if you're playing knights. And, and so then you've got that flexibility to like ahead of time kind of plan out what your secondaries you are going to gunna for are. With the knowing that, well, if the opponent just gives me one, um, I'll toss out this one to add that in. Cause like, I already know the way I've built my sisters. I have seven characters. If my opponent doesn't yep. take assassinate, um, that's points they're probably losing. <laughs> so that, that's, that's my take on how the secondaries are and how you can kind of, I guess, like you said, speed up for the phases or planning. <laughs> Yeah. No, and I did like the fact that, like, the phases themselves are broken up, so it's very clear of, like, this happens in the command phase, this happens in the psychic phase, this, you know, you you score here, you do this, then, like, it all just, it all makes that clearer. Um, I think you just have to, you know, I, 
I just have to get better at, at playing more and, and, and remembering when all of those things, you know, go off. But they do, they are very clear about when they happen, which is good. Yeah, I think this is this is definitely one of the best delineated and very very tightly defined set of missions we've had, uh, especially coming you know from from officially from Games Workshop. Um, I do still have my concerns about some missions being like some of the secondary objectives are impossible to max out. And I'm not just saying that because it's hard yeah. to find an opponent where they'll give you those points, but there's a couple like retrieve Octarius data and warp ritual where the most you can score is 12 and you're, you can theoretically on a secondary, you should be up to able to score up to 15. And this leads a little bit into the discussion about the event that was just last weekend, which was the London open GT, like, which is a huge, it's a super major. There were hundreds of players playing in this. Well, well I'll toss out the redoc list. Then you can go back into their scoring. Um, some of those that only go to 12, the reason for it is because they are very easy to max out. Yeah, and, and so they want to put that difficult. Cause I mean, you, for that one specifically, you just have, one of your units in a table quarter at the start, end of your movement phase, have them not or do the action so they don't do anything else till the end of your turn. So the opponent doesn't even get to react to that. So you can easily like deep right. strike a couple units into different table quarters, have them do the action. It, it's, 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 I don't want to say a free 12 points, but it, it's so easy to get. If that was 15, it would be an auto take by everybody. At least with it being only twelve, it's it makes a, a decision: Do I want this twelve sure points, or do I want something else that can maybe crank out to the fifteen? Yeah, exactly. So I, I do like I do kind of like that balance that balancing element to it. Uh, but yeah, you, you then get into weird situations like the London GT that we were. Yeah, yeah. So with the London GT, like normally when you have a super major like that, you'll have like. A three-day event where you'll do like three games Friday, three games Saturday, and then that will give you like a top sixteen or top eight that will then play three games. Like, yeah, it's, I think it's a top eight that will then play three games to figure out the top eight rankings. But at that point, you've already cut down the field pretty far with six, you know, six games. In this case, they only did games on Saturday, Sunday. And they only did five games. And so after that, they were doing cutoffs at, you know, I think, let's see, let me make sure I, because obviously I wasn't there, but because uh, London, it's a bit far away. But yeah, okay, so with nearly only, with nearly six, this is from uh, Goonhammer, uh, Competitive Innovations, the ninth edition, London Goes Big. With nearly 600 players in only five rounds, cutting to a four-person knockout final, the theory going into the LGT was that if you were aiming to win it, you had to be going in with a list designed to score as close to 100 points in every game as possible. And so when reviewing top players' lists before the event, it was very clear that this had been taken on board and shaped a lot of the top metagame. As it played out, however, I'm less certain we'll see such an all-in all metagame for the next few. As the, all the best players in the room scored 100 points in their first round, the event very quickly stratified, so there were essentially two undefeated brackets rather than one. The max scored bracket and the normal undefeated bracket. And the former of these was an absolute bloodbath. 
But so just like you'd either you either utterly dominated your opponent or you were utterly dominated is basically what it came down to because there was no room for error. You had to max everything out. And a lot of people were talking like, yeah, if you take something like read Octarius or retrieve Octarius data where you can only score 12 points, congratulations, you didn't actually you're not actually going to place because even if you win your game, you didn't win by enough by like maxing out. Uh, although they do say that when the dust settled after five rounds, the top four had scores ranging from 476 to 469 total VP. Higher than the average GT, obviously, but not quite take for your tree Octarius data once and you're out either, unquote. <laughs> but yeah, it does, it does risk putting you at a disadvantage as far as placings to take a couple of those easy objectives. But also with the again with the emphasis on armies that can either alpha strike, which is what Mechanicus has proven to be ridiculously good at, or Drukari, which maybe is like can alpha strike, but is also just really good at trading units and being more cost effective at trading units and having units that are just better at doing things than yours will be. Um it, it's interesting how those shake out because if you can just basically wipe most of your opponent off the board or just leave them in a constantly back foot bad position the entire game, you don't necessarily have to max out on a hundred to, to win big. Yeah. True. But there, there's two, I guess, ways to look at that. You say winning big, like, yeah, I won by like 50 points. That's a big win. But when you're looking at the overall tournament thing, it's, actually not about what your opponent does it's only about what you do and your score no i think it's interesting because event structure creates its own own meta you know and in an event like this where you're you're putting so much focus on as as dennis mentioned not necessarily what your opponent does but scoring as many points as possible for you it's going to result in more aggressive games. It's going to result in different secondaries being taken. Um, it's going to result in probably more killy list builds. And like, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It just means that you're going to wind up with a different meta than you would at some other, other events. And I know previously we talked about like submarining. This is kind of an interesting solution to submarining. I don't know that it completely solves it. Well, it, it completely solves submarining, but I don't know that it doesn't cause other issues. Right. But I kind of like the idea that like, you're you're for, you're building the event in such a way that you're kind of forcing everyone to be like be as aggressive as possible be as killy as possible play it play the game a certain way and like honestly i whether whether it creates its own issues or not i at least applaud them for being like we know what we want this event to be we're going to build rules that make this event that so i i like that I, I can respect that, but I'll, I'll flip on the other side of I appreciate as much as I might complain about it, the US Open being eight rounds and capping, having a hard cap on players. Because after those eight rounds, mm -hmm. you will have one undefeated player. Yeah, for sure. So that that's the easiest way to see who's, who's going to win. Well, and especially because those yeah. undefeated players are then going to a final event <clears throat> to play to become, you know, figure out who is the actual like undefeated person. Yeah. But but even then, yeah, it's like your your hope is to have a, a number of rounds commensurate to the number of players that you have so that you can end up with like the one clear winner. 
And, and so, yeah, that, this is just, I think it's, it's an odd a structure for such a large event to be sure. But I do think we get some interesting top, like the, the top four is kind of interesting because we see a, a good mix. And so obviously these are players who went like solidly undefeated going into, you know, that final like four person bracket. Uh, so you had like Malik Rubio take first with a Mechanicus list that is one of the the new current hotness lists, which is Planes and Skitari. He had uh, two units of 20 Rangers and one unit of 19 Rangers. <laughs> and no, no, sorry, four unit and and then three units of 20, one unit of 19. And then, like, a pair of the Iron Strider Balistari, which are proving to be very good. And, oh, no, correction. And then an additional unit of 15 Rangers, because he had three detachments. <laughs> and he used that to get f uh, four different fly, like, three Stratoraptors and one uh, Fusilov uh, flyer on the board. So he's got flyers that can put out a lot of firepower and are difficult to hit. And can pretty much get you anywhere. And then just big blocks of Skitari. And then backed up with um, a couple of uh, Tech Priest Manipulus, a couple of Skitari Marshals, and then the two Balistari. And like that right there, I mean, that it's like taking what is good about the about Mechanicus right now and just refining it down to like its most powerful version. And I was so you say, just end up with these up big. Yeah, it's like you just end up with these these blocks of troops that are really hard to shift, flyers that are just, you know, hard to deal with anyway. And Hey there. In this part of the episode, I have a complete brain fart on the rules for aircraft in 8th and 9th edition, since they're about the same. And forgetting that the rules about the 90 degree turn and moving in straight lines and everything is in the supersonic rule on various planes, rather than being in the core rules, which is where I was thinking it was going to be. And so that's why the Mechanicus aircraft are so good compared to others. They do still have the 90 degree and straight line limitation, but they also have the ability to take an extra 90 degree turn in the middle of their movement, uh, as opposed to like Imperium aircraft or even the updated Heldrake, which still, if it's supersonic, has to go in a straight line. I'd really like supersonic to be a stock rule in the core book for aircraft and then have the vehicles that don't have supersonic or have a modification thereof to explain it. But hey, 8th and 9th edition decided that universal rules were not really meant to be a thing, and uh, I have feelings about that. But anyway, back to the show. Also, like one of the things that like they had to tone down for Mechanicus, and they're still super good, is the fact that... so. Attack bonus, like if your your attack roll bonuses cap at plus or minus one, like they can never get beyond that. And same with two wound rolls, they can you can never get more than plus or minus one to wound. Saves don't have that that limitation, and part of that is because the way AP works, you don't want to li limit weapons to only a one point penalty to to make saves because that would render AP useless. But at the same time, it does allow you to stack saving abilities and anything else that can make your units more resilient. And like even with Lucius toned down so that because right now, the, like originally Lucius got if you're hit with a one damage weapon, then your armor save is imp improved by one. 
And that also stacked with a light cover, which added one to your armor save. They actually updated Lucius so that you can't stack those two things specifically. But Lucius is still proving to be a really nasty combination. And just because you've got Skatari Rangers with a ton of individual firepower and then those flyers and Balistari and just ripping things off the board. And that, that took first at the London GT and had, and builds like that have been taking first and second, third. They, you know, they've all been taking spots on the podium since the Mechanicus Codex came out, which tells me that they haven't toned down Mechanicus enough yet. Right. But I, what I think is interesting is if you look at second, third, and fourth place, you see some lists that are like proving to be good, but they're like, we're like, there's not a Drukari player in the top four, which is surprising. And in fact, uh, the first Drukari is at sixth, sixth place, but there's a lot of Drukari in the top like 19 or 20 because there were 15 players undefeated total, which again tells you that their scoring system was kind of weird. But there's like one, two, there's one, two, three, four. Four Drukari, and then uh, like one Eldari, which I think okay, that was Harlequins and Craft World. Never mind. So okay, so yeah, so there's one, two, three, four Drukari in the top twenty. Um, another one, two, three, four Mechanicus players in the top twenty. So when that's making up half of your top twenty, there might be an issue. When you've got two armies making yeah. that up. But then the the actual rest of the top four is second place was Death Watch. That's Interesting. impressive. Hmm. So there's a build called Death Watch, uh, Death Watch Dreadnoughts that's proving to be very good right now. Which is, let's see, uh, like a free unit of company veterans... Uh, or free as in not fitting into an force order slot. Uh, Primaris Captain, uh, which is basically like the stock captain that comes in the Indominus box set, the the uh, heavy bolt pistol, the relic shield, and the mastercrafted power sword. Um, a okay. pair of tech marines, uh, three units of Death Watch veterans with four frag cannons and a shotgun. <laughs> <laughs> And then that's a name of, na- name of my new college band, <laughs> right? <laughs> Four frag cannons and a shotgun. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, and then a trio of redemptor redemptor dreadnoughts, all with Icarus rocket pod, macroplasma incinerator, and onslaught Gatling cannon, and two storm bolters. And then three contemptor dreads. Uh, two with Cyclone Missile Launchers and all of them with uh, double twin Volcarite Culverins. And then a Sicarian Arcus, which I'd have to look that one up in the the Imperial Armor book to even figure out what that one does. And then a Drop Pod. Hmm. But like leaning heavily onto Dreadnoughts with a pair of uh, Tech Marines backing them up. Interesting. And with... And because those are five-man units in the drop pod, like, they put two of the the five-man units in one drop pod, and then they use the teleportarium to put another one into into deep strike. So you can deep strike those frag cannons wherever you need them, and you have, like, dreadnoughts on the board just 
taking the damage because they are resilient enough to survive an alpha strike. So the Arcus is the one with like the 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 two rotary missile launchers. Ah, okay. So that's uh, twenty-four inch range, heavy two d six, strength five, AP minus two, one damage. Uh, units attacked by this do not get any bonus for cover. Uh, when targeting infantry units, any rolls of six inflict a single mortal wound in addition to any other damage. Uh, I think. Are you which book are you looking at? Um, I'm looking at the. Oh, you know what? That's the that's the experimental rules still. The the one they have on their website is not is not updated. Okay, nope, it's not. So okay, so yeah, so the Sicarian Arca or Sicarian Arcus, it has the yeah, it's got the Arcus missile launcher, which is a uh, heavy forty eight inch range, heavy two d six blast weapon. So those big blobs mm. will just take the full 12, 12 shots. Strength six, AP minus one, two damage. So, again, against, like, a Lucius environment, it does more damage. They don't get the benefit to the, you know, they don't get the extra save. And, uh, like, blessed blast and can target units not visible to the bearer. So, nice. they can target without actually having to to see. So, even if they have somebody hides a blob squad behind terrain on an objective, they can still reach out and touch someone. And with the smaller table sizes, 48 inches is enough to hit almost anything unless you're going like corner to corner. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then he did take a... Oh, and it just comes with a, a heavy bolter on it as well for just, you know, extra shots. But so that's kind of... It's like a counter list to Mechanicus shenanigans. And with the, the uh, Death Watch veterans are also troops and have obsec, so dropping them onto objectives with frag cannons is pretty nice. Right. Uh, third place was uh, uh, third place was Death Guard, and again leaning into things that are very resilient and also large blobs. This lit had ninety seven Poxwalkers in it, and five units of Terminators. Three three units of Blight Lords and two units of Death Shroud. Nice. And then a Foul Blight Spawn, a Tallyman, and uh, a pair of Chaos Spawn, and then two Malignant Plaguecasters and Typhus as his HQs. And he was actually running it as the Terminus Est Assault Force, which is the special build that they put in the, the first uh, like Ward on Cheridon book so you have to play like all infantry you cannot use any vehicles but it's just ridiculous amount of board control because killing killing 97 pox walkers is not easy no (laughs) and then with you know just those those anvil and hammer you know terminator units coming down from deep strike but thing is, those 97 Poxwalkers are only 485 points, so he still has 1,500 points or more to play with, like, to get the good stuff. And then uh, fourth place was Adeptosaurotas, which was running a bloody a bloody rose list. Celestine, let's see, we've got, a, we've got an Outrider detachment with Celestine, a unit of Sacrosants, and a unit of Repentia, two Dominion units, all with uh, our... Uh, the artificer crafted storm bolters, a trio of Zephyrim squads with pennants, 
a pair of uh, multi-melter retributor squads, a couple of rhinos, and then a patrol detachment with Morvan Vall, a Repentia Superior, another unit of Repentia, uh, one Battle Sisters squad, a Dogmata, and another multi-melta retributor squad. So one thing I noted about this, there is one troop unit in that entire army. So they do not care about obsec at all. (laughs) And the list that finally beat him was the uh, Death Watch Dreadnoughts. Even with all those multi-meltas, that was the list that beat him. But yes, and uh, one of the notes that uh, Goonhammer puts on this, and and I think I agree with it, is Sister's Book feels like a great benchmark for what a strong army should look like. It's got power, it's got lots of options, but unlike Drukhari and Admech, it feels like it stays on the right side of reasonable. So it's like, it's an army that is beatable, but has a lot of really good tools. And I think, uh, and I think Death Guard are, are showing that as well. Like, I've seen some people see, say that Death Guard and uh, Sisters are some of the best crafted books for ninth edition, not in the sense that they are the most powerful because obviously Drakari and Admech are the most powerful right now based on just win rates, but that they are powerful, but like internally and externally balanced, like they're good and there's lots of things you can build with them. Yeah. I I think, I think that's the key. There's a lot of builds within those two books in particular that are good and, you know, and reasonably powerful. And if you play them well, you can win games. Um, whereas like with some of the, with Admech and Jakari, it does seem like there's certain units or certain builds that are just like, oh, this is really good. You always want to take this. And then they wind mm-hmm. up being very powerful. And yeah. And, and, that's not to say that, like, even the, the, the super powerful armies like Admech and Drukhari, like, Drukhari has shifted a bit because some of the things that Drukhari was taking advantage of were eroded after mm-hmm. a little bit. You know, you know, once they had data coming in showing that, like, these are problematic, like fixing the Dark Technomancers and things like that. But the lists have just adjusted. And, for example, let's look at the Lord Marshall Conference. Matt Root won the Lord Marshall Conference, and he did it by cleaning up in a number of events with a Drukhari build that leaned heavily on, um, I would say leaned heavily on the Kronos. I believe that's correct, yeah. Yeah, Kronos, Kronos Drukhari. So, for example, here's the list that Matt took to win Flying Monkey. Uh, so um, he's running a Cabal of the Obsidian Rose. Uh, he took an Archon, a unit of Cabalite Trueborn with uh, two Blasters and a Dark Lance mixed in, a unit of Incubi, which Incubi have shown to be very, very killy and effective, and then a Cult of Strife uh, Witch Cult Detachment with two Succubi, uh, one of which doing the Razor Flail, Dark Lotus Toxin, ridiculous number of attacks ability. Um, a unit of witches with uh, an agonizer in it, and otherwise just a bunch of he- Hectari blades. A unit of mandrakes. Uh, two units of uh, three reavers. And then a, uh, a Dark Technomancer's Homunculus Coven patrol detachment with Drazar. Two units of racks with ossifactors and hex rifles, another two units of incubi, two chronos, and 
four raiders. And yeah, basically it just a whole bunch of stuff that <laughs> Let's see. Yeah. Cuts down some of the standard good stuff tools to bring in two units of Dark Technomancer Kronos, providing a durable unit that is ideal for hosing down two wound models and vehicles without damage reduction. And those two units of Kronos are three Kronos each. He's dropped like 480 oh, wow. points on those okay, Kronos. Two Kronos. I thought it was just like two Kronos, but six? No, 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 no. That, six. So he's running six Kronos in there. Yeah. But that's the thing. It's like a lot of this stuff. Like, each Kronos is, like, 80 points. The Raiders are all Darklands Raiders. They're at 95 points. But other than that, it's, like, you know, nothing in here. Like, I think the most expensive unit is the unit of Cabalite Trueborn outside of the the two Kronoses. Like, everything in here is relatively cheap, but has a lot of damage output. And, like, if I remember, Incubi are some of the more resilient... Uh, Drakari units because they have better armor. You mean they and have armor? <laughs> they have armor, yeah, that that also helps. But like everything in here has the potential to do a lot of damage. It's just you have to be able to use them well and good players with a good Drukari army can clean up. So this is an army where it, your stuff is just more cost effective than anybody else's stuff at doing yeah. things, but you're not seeing a lot of big blobs of things the way you do with like Mechanicus or Death Guard or things like that. They would just die. Yeah. They're, they're, they would be too fragile. So you take small, small squads that can punch way above their weight class. And that's why I said like Drukari can trade units because yeah, if you lose a couple of these small units, Fine, you yeah, you good. Congratulations, you killed a small unit, but I have plenty more, and they're all better at, at doing things than the equivalent size unit on your side. But that's why Mechanicus with big blobs of guys that are hard to kill, and a, and the ability to alpha strike you mostly off the board on turn one is like the thing that put like Drukari was cleaning up until the Mechanicus Codex came out. And then the Mechanicus Codex has been cleaning up, and there have been armies that have been able to to weather that, but not consistently. Like I think Mechanicus still has like the best overall win rate, and one of the issues with that is still going first. Like this is still this is still a game where at least at the competitive level going first can make a huge difference. Now, that doesn't mean it's always a a surefire thing that you win, but I think the go first win rate is still something like 57, 58%. So it's heavily skewed towards going first. I mean, if it's if you've got a 6 6 versus 4 chance of winning if you go first, you're in a better spot. But flip side, like Bam Bam Hunter from uh, Flying Monkeys is at the U.S. Open down in uh, in New Orleans right now. And as of the end of the day yesterday, he won. He's four and two, and he's only gone first in one of those games, which he did win. The one thing I'll toss out about going first or second in this edition is. You set up your entire army before you even know if you're going first or second. So, right. like when I was at Iron Halo, a lot of people deployed their army defensively. 
And if both people deploy their army defensively, it's very hard to get off of successful alpha strike. True. 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 But that is also one of the reasons why, mm-hmm. um, like, the Skatari flyers are really good because they can, like, it's easy for them to move into a position and just unload firepower on you regardless of where true. you are. Although, uh, what's interesting is reading about that and they point out that, like, the mirror match there is kind of tricky because both armies can see each other. Both of you have <laughs> flyers, so you can still alpha strike the other. Yeah, so it sounds like the best alpha strikes would be all flyers or people that don't have to have line of sight. Which sounds like which mm. of the top ta- uh, ones you got there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, you know, lists that can use... Uh, like, I'm seeing transports playing an active role in delivering things like uh, units of uh, Repentia to, you know get aggressive assaults going in, but also ha- having lots of firepower to back that up, you know, heavy firepower. So kind of listening to this conversation, part part of me, I mean, obviously I know GW wants to have a balanced game or, you know, that's ultimately the goal for any, any game. But I kind of wonder like how much they're actually viewing this, how much they actually view this as a problem because describing like the way, you know, the good Drukari lists and the good Skatari lists, they sound like how those armies are in the fluff and like transports are, are more of a thing like they, you know, like it just, maybe it's not I, great from the competitive sense of the game because like these two armies are kind of dominating, but they're dominating in ways that are kind of, I think how the studio wants them to play, which is weird. You know, well, I don't know. I'll, I'll toss out two things that one, I think GW is watching, especially since I think next year somewhat they're going to take a bigger role in the tournament scene i think the u.s open stuff was just a tip of the iceberg but i think the issue isn't with how drukari and admech are playing as much as um if alpha strike stays this high of a rate which last thing i heard from gw is like oh yeah we've we've narrowed it down and it's actually getting down to balance but if flyers have become a problem and I don't need line of sight to shoot you as a problem. Maybe the next chapter approved will do something to address those. Because those, as we Mm -hmm. just talked about, are the two biggest factors for a successful alpha strike. Yeah, that's fair. And I, and I, I do hope that they, you know, they do something to address it. And, And I think they're paying attention to the competitive scene. I think they have been for a while, but I also know that like, they're very big on armies playing, kind of to the fluff and like, yeah, like a gigantic legion of Skatari, you know, Rangers on foot. Like that's kind of what they want. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. It's, it's going to be an interesting tension to see how they, how they resolve it. Well, the Rangers aren't foot. I don't think would be the ones doing as much of the alpha striking as the flyers. Well, sure. For sure. Well, and I find it interesting is that I've seen arguments back and forth like, oh, this is an edition that's leaning more towards MSU, which would th- you would think would be pulling away from like the big blobs of Skatari, big blobs of uh, like Poxwalkers, things like that, and play more like the Yukari style is very much a, an MSU army. Mm-hmm. And so I do find it interesting that there's not one build necessarily like the game is skewed this way or the game is skewed fully that way and i think one of the things that does help that is 
the, you know, like the rule of three has really helped tone down some of the ridiculous uh, MSU spamming we saw in past editions. Yeah. But at the same time, because that doesn't carry over into troops, you get things like the Skatari where you have, you know, multiple blocks of like Skatari Rangers or Skatari Vanguard, which are, you know, it's like, well, you can't rule the three of them because they're troops. They should be allowed to take big, big blobs of them. And like you said, Kevin, it's very fluff appropriate to just have a bunch of foot slogging, you know, van you know, foot slogging Skitari crossing the battlefield. I mean, that's how it was always right. described in the, in, in the original, like, you know, Skitari codex. So yeah, it, it's, it's hard to figure out how to address that short of like points updates will help somewhat. I think you can easily mm-hmm. make the case at this point that some of these units are punching above their weight, you know, their weight class, you know, like Drukari are hitting harder on average than other units are. Uh, Skitari are obviously like Skitari troops are obviously more effective at doing things than other units are. And so it makes me wonder if we're going to see points values adjusted for those when we get the points update next year, or if they're going to try to like swing really or like, if they're going to try to stick really hard with like whatever metric or rubric they've come up with to address those issues, like, or, or, or stick with that rubric that they've used to calculate those points values and say, no, 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 that is where we want them. It's, we just haven't figured out how to, to fine tune it yet, which it seems like you'd be running enough games, getting enough data now. And obviously like they're running they're they're getting data from from BCP. I'm sure they're getting they're collecting data on the individual games and like who goes first, how many rounds does the game go, how you know, like what armies being played, what's the list being played. They've got to be collecting that data. And you know, ninth edition was developed was probably developed as soon as eighth edition started and was oh, probably. Sure. St- you know, they started with that as soon as 8th edition was out, but also started, you know, applying the information that they've learned. And obviously, over the last year or so, they've been, as we've been getting more games played, they've been collecting that information. So I'm wondering if we're just seeing a, a meta that is basically a year behind in balancing because of the lack of events from COVID. Or if we are seeing, like, if this is actually, like, is this the direction Games Workshop wants the game to be? Because that's the other concern is if a meta starts appearing stagnant, if, like, if Mechanicus is just, you know, repeatedly the top army, it's going to make people less likely to want to play or to want less likely to want to play anything other than Mechanicus, at least at the competitive level. Now we are seeing new armies start to pop. Like Grey Knights came out recently. Grey Knight, Dread Knights and Interceptors is proving to be a very, very solid list. Cause I think what Ben Cherwin won Iron Halo with a, uh, a Grey Knights, Dread Knights list. Yeah. Grey Knights were, I don't want to say all over Iron Halo, but that's what people talked about Grey Knights the most. Yeah, no, Grey Knights are really, really solid right right now. Are they enough to dethrone Mechanicus? Well, in the hands of a good player, they might be. And so as more codexes are coming out, we are starting to see some shakeup. 
It'll be interesting to see what these next two or three codexes that are coming out towards the end of the year. We've got Templars for sure, and then a couple of other things. I, I really think at this point, because there is such a fundamental difference in how the game is played due to the mission structure, we need it'll we need the armies that haven't been updated yet updated because I think once every army like if they can get every army on like sisters or death guard level or very or close to it it'll create a more a, a less clearly stratified meta where there and there's still room to adjust what mechanicus can do and what drukari can do at this point it's just going to it's just going to be hitting them with like the point nerf hammer more you know because I, I i don't know if you want if you tone down their rules much more then you risk making them utterly crippled and unable to compete and that's not a good place to be either well so uh, i want to pull on one kind of thread that just popped in my head that you mentioned there um so we do have you know a, a good number of armies that have been updated to ninth edition but there are still a number of you know, 8th edition codexes out there. What is probably the best 8th edition army right now? Like, of the ones that haven't been updated yet? Like, are we, I, I know we're not um, seeing any Eldar? of them, like... Yeah, I guess probably... So, like, we're not really seeing any of them near, like, the top, but, like, within that little subset, are there any that are, partic- you know, doing pretty well? Um, yeah, I guess Eldar's probably the only one. Like... Early, early in ninth edition, uh, Harlequins were were doing very well. Har- uh, Harlequins were kind of playing the role that Drukari are now, in that they were small, fragile, but MS. You could do a lot of MSU. You could get to objectives very quickly. Um, they had decent damage output for being as fragile as they are, and so like Harlequins was kind of sitting in that position, and they're still okay. There's but like if we look at recent events over the last like couple of months, let's see things that you know, armies that haven't been updated, like most of the stuff I'm seeing is st- like, here's an event where Harlequins took fourth and there's a, here's an Eldari third place finish. Here's a, an Imperial Knights third place finish, which is surprising. Interesting. Not that Knights are bad, but Knights, Knights kind of have a, kind of have a spot where they struggle right. with the objective-based play. Mm-hmm. And they have a whole objective that's just anti-knights. Yes. Right. So it's like you're practically, you, you know you're giving your opponent at least one objective to play against you. So so even amongst the older codexes, we're seeing kind of like more, the ones that are doing well are like the kind of speedy MSU style list. That, that's just interesting to me. Like, I, I don't know that there's any anything I was necessarily pulling out of that. I just was wondering like what, what elements from eighth edition are still working and still in play and, and performing well in the new edition. And I wonder how that's going to influence some of those armies going forward. Cause there, there are several armies that will need massive shakeups uh, to be competitive, like Tau uh, or Imperial Knights. Like there's a lot of things that they'll have to change or be be updated to be able to be competitive with some of these and i'm just i'm just kind of wondering what that's going to look like so yeah i'm looking at like a lot of these these events um 
Harlequins uh, show up occasionally. Eldari show up occasionally. Anything beyond that, like Tyranids are like a real outlier. I think I've only seen them show up once, maybe twice in all these like top eight lists. Um, yeah, I'd say Eldari and Harlequins are probably th- okay. in a better spot, but yeah. not great. You know, they're not they're not right. doing great. But everything else, it's like ninth edition armies are the ones that are primarily being played. Like uh, Chaos Demons show up like once, maybe twice. Uh, Chaos Space Marines show up once, maybe twice. Right. But that's that that's not like the older armies are just not holding up and i think it's it's very clear that if you are not designed for this edition you have an uphill battle if you have just yeah. the right build the right player and the right matchups you can do decently but it's there's a lot of there's a lot of factors in play to make that mm-hmm. happen that other armies don't necessarily have to have or can weather more easily. It's like you have less room for error with older codexes. Yeah, for sure. And some armies like just don't have any room for error. Like you can win an event with with Tau, but you have to play perfectly and you have to have everything just working right for you. Right. I would say the armies that can the armies that can do that are the ninth edition ones because they just they can handle a couple of play mistakes or a couple of bad matchups more easily. They've just got a wider toolbox to work with mm-hmm. that work with the scoring structure. No, yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, I, I guess it's not as big a problem as it has been in past editions because we are getting updates a lot faster than we have, you know, than we have in the past. It's not like it's fifth edition where some armies are still playing with third edition codexes, et cetera. Yeah, it'll be an interesting. It'll be interesting to see when all of the armies get an update for this code uh, for this edition, and get on that same playstyle to see just what it looks like. And and hopefully we don't have, you know, tenth edition right around the corner. We can actually like have everybody on that same level for a little while. <laughs> so I'm I'm gonna put out. I'm gonna float an idea out there that it, obviously it's it's too late for this, but. Knowing what we know now about how much scoring and table size and terrain rules and things like that have changed up 9th edition, I almost wish that there had been a like a set of 9th edition indexes or something like that, mm-hmm. or even just some very basic updates to every army to give them like a set of missions and a set of things that covered performing actions and things like, you know, things that adjusted them to this structure. Because while the rules, like the core rules of ninth edition had, you know, a number of small adjustments that had, you know, have definitely had an impact. It's the, the mission structure has changed so much. And unlike, like when we were playing ITC missions or things like that, it's like those were missions that developed in response to how the game was played. And in this case, we have a new set of missions 
out the gate that define how the game is played, and now armies are having to be adjusted to the mission structure at the codex level. So it's a, it's like the reverse problem. It's and <laughs> well, without maybe a, an across the board update, I don't know how you fix that. Or I'd say maybe not indexes for everyone, but maybe when the first um, chapter proved came out, have a section where you had like the secondaries for each faction in there at least so everyone had an alternate secondary because you can only also take one of those per battle anyway so it wouldn't be that much of a change but it would at least kind of give a idea on how this faction could play in the new edition as mm-hmm. opposed to just waiting till the next codex for them right 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 all right, so so let's talk a little bit about how this actually how this edition actually worked in pro- in practice. Uh, Dennis, tell us about your experience playing not two thousand point ninth edition games at Iron Halo. Fun. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, well I would hope that. so. I would. Hope <laughs> All right. <laughs> Good episode, everybody. No, All right. Tune in week, next so. week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I mean. The gameplay is different. I'll, I'll give it that. But the core of the game is the same of like playing with people and just having a good time. Now, how the rules work out. Um, yeah, like I, I mentioned earlier, it seemed like most people played defensively. They started off very defensively. The other thing I noticed is I, I saw the read Octarius data seem to be on. I'll, I'll say the more conservative, more the people who could like move around a lot or have deep strikers, they would drop in so they could easily get those 12 points. And then just, I saw a mix of like play styles of like some castling, like this is my spot. I'm holding this point. You're not going to get it. I saw some very aggressive lists. Well, and, and this should be no surprise. One of the very aggressive lists was corn. Uh, corn demons came at me and they were very fast and pretty much got to me and I didn't have much of an answer for them. I mean, I even tried my deep striking and got behind them and then, well, they were actually fast enough to run back to me. Uh, corn beasts are, are deadly, Kevin, just let you know. Oh yeah. Corn dogs are great. <laughs> and, and so, and most of the games were a back and forth, but you could kind of get the feeling based on how you are playing like you you need to hold the you need to hold your primaries if you don't hold the primary secondaries might get you out of this the fire but if you can hold the primaries that's your best chance of winning and then the secondaries are then what can like get you over the top but if you fall behind on one or the other is or both if you fall behind in both you're you're just done and I guess this gets back to what Kevin said about it kind of having a lot of progressive and in-game scoring. The progressive scoring is there to kind of give you an idea of um, how well you're doing. Like in my games, I, I took um, – here you have to like no mercy, no respite to have three units that have to stay alive till the end of the game. Um, spoiler, a lot of times they didn't. But if I could do that, which I did in one game, that's 15 points. If I lose one, that's still 10 points. So I was kind of banking on survivability. Um, and that's also one of the ones where it's a too fast of a game. If the opponent ignores my secondaries, well, then I'll get those points. If they don't, because sometimes they, I would like, if they got unit hurt, I would go hide them. 
and then they would have to go hunt that down to deny me those five points. And so in that regards, it is kind of you, you are playing against an opponent. You have to know your secondaries. You have to know their secondaries to kind of counter what they're going to do. Like assassinates a normal one that I knew I have my characters, but I'm not going to switch how I play because I need those characters in play. That's why I put them in the list. But it's one that the opponent was very aware of where my characters were. And I had like one game where he wasn't, he took assassinate, but he didn't really focus on my characters at all and then i still had three characters alive at the end so he only got like um i think 12 points from that and it, it's one that like against space wolves in my first match um at one point he said okay i need points so where's your characters so he was very aware of what he needed and i think that alludes to what you said earlier kevin of knowing what you want to do practicing it playing it and and then Finding out what to, I guess, shoot off the table first. Mm -hmm. I know that wasn't a play-by-play. That was more of a generic of how the game feels. Well, well, no, and I I think we're trying to really get more of a feel of, of like, the overall feeling of the game rather than, like, a battle-by-battle. Right. I was going to say, the other thing that that I I was pleased with, and I think this is because of the Overwatch rule being as it is, um, melee, shooting... They both felt very killy, and I did not feel any negative effects of going into melee. Uh, like I mentioned about the corn game, I did feel the, oh my gosh, they're bearing down on me, um, <laughs> happen, um, because I didn't have an over, well, I did spend like Overwatch on a unit, but it was not enough to kind of stem the tide bearing down on me. But I think that's a good thing that both shooting and melee seemed viable in each of the games I had. Well, that's good. That's good to hear. Well, that's good. That's that's always been a yeah. That's been a tension in the game for many editions. So f- uh, finding that there those were both available, and I think in our game, Kevin, that I f- I think we found that reflected too. You had effective shooting in your army, but yeah. you also had very effective assaulting, and and likewise for me. So like we could, we both had that those capabilities, and I I didn't feel at all hum- hamstrung by taking assault units the way that I might have in a past edition. Yeah. No, I do think that's good. Yeah. I felt like everything was able to, with the smaller table, especially like, I just felt like, and, and more the better terrain rules. I felt like everything was able to get around and could survive to get close for, for combat. And yeah. Yeah. I'll toss that terrain does make a huge difference. And I like the fact that a lot of the bigger tournaments are kind of advertising. Here's how our tables will be set up. And there's enough train to hide. There's enough taller train to like put big things behind. And the train made the game feel better. Yeah. Yeah. The, no, and, and it should. And that's, but that's also where units that can ignore line of sight or that can move very quickly and get around the train can really clean up in this meta because they can ignore a lot of that too. So that is true. So there is that. Okay. So one, one critique I have seen, and I don't know if this is universal, but it it caught my my ear when I heard it, was that sometimes in the game it can feel more like you're playing to your own objective rather than interacting with your opponent. Did you find that to be the case? I'm going to say yes and no. And I say yes because I did have one game where I mean, this was like day two. People were, we knew we weren't going anywhere, but my opponent kind of seemed very distracted and didn't, 
I would say pay attention to the game, but he was kind of just playing his own thing and not really paying attention to what I was doing. But then I had like on day one, definitely people were looking at my army, looking at my, um, where I deployed and they were very focused on what I was putting down where, so they would know where's the things I need to kill to deny you points. Where's the characters I need to kill. And in that regards, it, it was still interactive between the two people because, I mean, it wasn't me saying, hey, you need to do this. It was them taking the initiative of, I, I want to win, so I need to know where these things that I need to go are. And so that's why I can say I can see both sides of it. It just depends on how, I guess, you play the game. That's fair. Because, uh, like, I'm thinking about, the again, the game that we played last night where, like, one of my objectives was the mission objective, which was like data intercept, which is basically me trying to control objectives and then having a guy or having a squad on an objective, uh, performing an action to earn me points next, you know, like the next command phase. And then the other one was like engage on all fronts, which is just like, I just need to be in all four, you know, in three or four table quarters to get points. And so, there were units that I was using in both those cases that really just did nothing other than attempt to earn points. Um, yes. Like yeah. I would have, I'd have some troop units that their entire job was just to be at places and not do a thing. And there were also times when I would like, well, does it make sense for me to do this or do that? If I do this, I might theoretically deny you some points or I can do the other thing, which could theoretically earn me points. It's probably better for me to just play to my own objectives rather than do the, the thing that just maybe slows you down a little bit. And, and a lot of times that does come down to like what unit you're going to kill or if you're even going to bother trying to kill a unit. Yeah, and I'll toss that out with two things. One is, after playing like those six matches, in my mind, I'm going to change my play style some because I didn't. I had like small MSU squads of troops that were just hiding or sitting there. Because I'm sorry, a five sister squad with bolt guns is not going to kill a lot of things. No, and so sometimes the best thing for them to do would be go go to a table quarter, go do an action. And so I, I'm now liking the fact that those small squads that I have in my list already now have a purpose, now have something to do. On the flip side of that, about the, the weighing of points of, do I deny them points or do I take my own points? I like the fact that we have to make those decisions now. And it might be, yeah, playing it safe would be the safe, but then what's the trade-off is, well, you didn't kill them. And if you're able to go deny them points and kill them, that weakens them down the road. So it, it puts, I'll say, some complex decisions in there that you have to make on the battlefield. That Yeah, no, that's that's fair. That's fair. I, I do wish there were more than two categories of secondaries that were devoted to destroying enemy units, though. Because, like, I know, like... Kevin, you took Grind Them Down as one of your secondaries, yep. and that really did shape how you were playing the game because you did have an emphasis on, I need to make sure I kill more units than Rob kills to get my points. Right, and then also it it it, it shaped what I was doing as well because there were times where I could like, well, I could 
completely kill this unit now or do I leave them crippled for a turn and then kill them on the next turn? You know, <laughs> well, like, because like with Mortarian and a Demon no, Prince, they're like, yeah, it's, choice. it's like, well, I've wiped this unit down to, you know, effectivelessness, basically. So it's just a couple guys, you know, a couple uh, models there. But I don't want to kill them right now. I want to kill them on the next turn. So, yeah, it 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 definitely changes the strategies a little bit. And I, and I like that. I think it does make it a more strategic game. It also means there's more of a learning curve when you haven't played in a year. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Both. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and uh, you know, and so, to, you know, take that, take everything we're saying with the knowledge that we are really just getting back into really playing the game. So we are, we it's are good shaking. first impressions. A lot of, yeah, a lot of our discussion has been uh, theory hammer for the last year. So it, it feels good to see it in practice and see you know how the game is is really played but i will say uh i have i've played i think six games of ninth edition at this point because we play i played two games back in august like last august and then i played three games at an rtt this june and then we've played kevin and i have played a game and we are going to try to get in a couple, one or two more games mm-hmm. while he's in town. And Richard, you and I are trying to get a game scheduled and make that more of a regular thing. So we're going to be getting more games in. But I will say that after these few games that I've played, one set in a tournament, the others just casually, I am overall enjoying the game. And I think... Yeah, yes, the 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 biggest I think some of the biggest decisions that do have to be made in the game happen almost before the game because the picking the secondaries is a big part of it, mm-hmm. much like it was when we were playing ITC tournaments. So it feels familiar but with like some different emphasis, but uh but overall I'm still liking this edition. Like I haven't, I haven't hit anything yet. Now, granted, I haven't played against Mechanicus or Ducari, so <laughs> right. who knows? That could like utterly crush. No, no, no. I take it back. I have played against Mechanicus. I and I did win that game barely. So, but that was when the Mechanicus, Mechanicus book had been out for a week. So I didn't get to play Mechanicus at its full unbridled power yet. <laughs> you know, once everybody had figured out the sauce. But uh, but no, I I I have had a positive experience, Kevin. I got the impression you enjoyed your first game of of ninth in over a year. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, it's it's a lot to learn, and I think there's a lot of moving pieces. But I do think it is a very enjoyable game, and it's a lot more. It was a lot more interactive, um, you know, because in the, you know in like the glory days of you know fourth fifth edition. You would you could go for 20, 30 minutes, but the only thing you're doing is maybe rolling a save or two and, you know, pulling models off the table. Um, and this feels a lot more interactive and back and forth, which I do like. Yeah, I, I've enjoyed it. But the only complaint I will still toss out is, especially getting back into it, there is a ton to learn, to know, to remember. Mm-hmm. And because a lot of the models have special rules. A lot of the armies have special rules. And then you have all of the stratagems. And... If you're just getting back in, you're going to forget some of that, either the army rule, the model rule, or especially what is the best time to use a stratagem. Yeah. So, yeah, all in all, I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm very much enjoying this edition. Like I said, my only gripe is there's a ton to remember, but you'll get 
a player will get over that by just playing the game more. And because once you get more games under your belt, there's some that you're trying to remember has become old hat. So then you'll just learn remembering the new stuff until the pat point where everything is kind of old hat. So just keep at it. I mean, I I think it's fun. (laughs) Yeah. I, I mean, this, like, it reminds me of the first time we tried playing like with ITC missions and trying to wrap our (laughs) brains around all those secondaries to pick. And so, and then by, by a couple of years in, we're like, okay, so what am I playing against? Yeah. I'm going to take this, this, and this, you know, it's like it, you, it just becomes second nature. So it's, yeah, it's the same thing. And, and I know like, you know, my next games will be fat with sisters will be faster. My next games with death guard will be faster just because I'm more used to them. And I'm looking forward to whenever they decide to update Tau to like relearn that army kind of from the ground up. And I'll imagine all my games there will be slow too. But, uh, but yeah, I, I think overall I'm enjoying the addition. I think as long as they can figure out how to address some of the, the balance issues that are still, showing up but the fact that they are at events you know that they are running events they're actively watching the events means they will hopefully have their finger on on the pulse of what's going on and um and we'll see how much more they get involved in the tournament circuit after that i know that is something you've had on your mind dennis yeah, well, and I hadn't until, like, the Warhammer Plus said, hey, you get VIP for being at our events. I'm like, oh, that means their events are going to be on a regular basis now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but anyway, I think that pretty much wraps up our our look at the current state of the game as it is being played and as we are experiencing it. And so we'll transition from there into hobby progress and then the morale phase. So hobby progress, I actually did a thing. I built a Morven Vol and I built my Dogmata so I could use them in the game against Kevin. I'm hoping that the next time we play, I might even have my Paragon War suits built. Crossing oh, yes, you, you need to use uh, those. They're so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't even necessarily care if they're great or not. I just want to use them. I just think they look they, they look cool. But that that's it. I, I built I built things and I'm 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 actually using my new hobby space. Yeah, and the the hobby space you have set up is is really cool. Like I I I got to tour his house a little bit, and like the new setup is really cool. I, I like it a lot. Um, I haven't done much. Uh, obviously, I've been traveling and stuff, so I'm not. I don't have my models around. I did uh, hammer out a paint scheme for my sisters, um, which is which is good. So I can kind of move forward on that. I did right before I I came back to Kansas City. I got delivered my um shadow's edge basis for the rest of my sisters so when i get back i will be able to build my paragon war suits and and some of those other things as well um and then i picked up two more units of death core from various you know people that had picked up their half of a you know octarius and stuff like that so i'll have um two more units of those to build when i get back so but that's kind of been it that that does remind me. I uh, so secret weapon minis is pretty much closing business. Uh, they're not making any more bases, and they're just selling off the last bit of their inventory. Otherwise, so I did not have a source for my new bases anymore that I had just ordered earlier this year. Um, but I went back to Dragonforge bases, 
And they have a new line of bases called the Reliquary bases, which are even more sister-focused than the previous ones that I, I had. And they actually have 28 mil bases. So I ordered two packs of those for Repentia. So I can build, like, the new Repentia on those and uh, have actually, like, everything consistent and cohesive and, and looking good. And they the turnaround on Dragonforge has... Like, when I last ordered Dragonforge, there was, like, a two- or three-month wait. They're down to, like... Uh, two to three weeks now. So they're processing orders very quickly. So nice. uh, highly recommended Dragonforge. They did the first set of bases for my army and now they have even more stuff. So definitely check them out. Cool. I'm still using GW normal bases that come in the boxes. So there I have is not nothing graduated. wrong with that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, now as for what I've been working on, I decided I still had other sisters to put together, so I decided to theory craft a new list for the U.S. Open, um, and so now I'm going to build my third group of Paragon War suits, build some more um, Celestine Sankersats, and I got yesterday I purchased another Dogmata, so then that way I can have like two Dogmatas running around the board because they're really cool. Um, so. My goal now is to get all of this put together soon so I can get them primed while the weather's still good. I'm kind of glad Texas is still warm. Um, <laughs> and then get them painted. And I've got a month and a half to do it in. And if I don't, well, then I've got my Iron Halo list. So that's right. what I'm working on and my, my next goal. Uh, for me, uh, work's been super busy, so... I have managed to put together uh, my one commando knob so far. <laughs> and, yeah, you and, were talking a bit before recording that the, the sprues for the commandos are not arranged in any form of human it, sanity or something. It, yeah, they're like just – I had to hunt all over all of the like three sprues – just to figure out kind of where all the parts for the knob was. So, because when when they do really compact, when they do release um, like orc quick build models, do they come in red sprues so they, that you can build them faster? <laughs> <laughs> they come in green. Yeah, they should come in red. That way you can build them faster. Because, <laughs> but 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 green is best. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> all right and then that takes us to the morale phase and uh since i just finished watching all nine episodes of it i thought i would talk a little bit about star wars visions yeah um which hit uh disney plus recently and uh unlike a lot of the other stuff that they've released which they have tended to d drip feed out in you know one episode a week uh they dropped all nine episodes of this at once and they're short they're like 15 minutes each. Mm -hmm. They're not big stories. And uh, if you're not sure, if you're not aware of what the concept of behind Star Wars Visions is, they basically gave a bunch of anime creators, directors, studios, um, basically said, make us, a, each of you make us a Star Wars story. Um, you don't have to be strictly set in canon. You can play around with it. You can just like incorporate Star Wars into the story. Tell us what you think a Star Wars story should be or what you would like to see. 
and you get you end up with nine very different very very different <laughs> uh stories none of them share animation styles um they're so don't look at this as like a cohesive series in any way it's an, it's an anthology series and there's everything from like the very first episode which is basically a kurosawa movie but with star wars elements like not just inserted, but like crossbred with it. So it's like a, it's like watching a Kurosawa like samurai period piece, but there are droids wearing straw hats and lightsaber katanas and things like that. Um, and all done in like black and white with spot color for like glow effects. Yeah. I've, um, I've only watched the first two episodes so far. And that first episode did really impress me. Yeah, I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, no, it's it, it's really neat. and there's like I so I won't get too far into spoilers on any of them, but uh, I like the second episode is thematically like as different from the first episode as you could possibly be because <laughs> yeah. it is not a serious episode in any way, shape, or form. Okay, well, I'll toss out this question as I haven't seen it because I also don't have Disney right now. Um, how would it compare to Animatrix? Because remember how that was a Matrix thing that had all the different creators do different styles for different Matrix stories. I think is it similar so to that. From, in a way? Yeah, I think it's kind of similar. Yes and yeah, no. it, it's the Animatrix stuff is all explicitly like canon because it was all like overseen by the Wachowskis as well. So it was very much like we're filling in the gaps of the story, but this is all like different styles. And it is that in that, like the, the art styles, the animation styles, the storytelling styles are all different, but these are also very clearly only like, I mean, one or two of these you might be able to like, Oh yeah, this is probably could fit into the star Wars universe. I would say probably five or six of them. There's really no way to square them into the actual larger Star Wars canon, which is completely fine. Sure there is. Make a Star Wars multiverse. Uh, without doing something like that. <laughs> but like, but like the, the, the first episode, which is really good, like the lightsaber that he has, like the lightsaber katana, is not like a, a lightsaber, you know, that you flip the switch on and it becomes the, you know, a katana blade. It is like he draws it like an actual katana and like the blade is always on and like... So it's one of those things where like, oh, no, this is very much different than your standard Star Wars stuff. So it's just a reinterpretation of it, which I think is very interesting. And I, I think it's good to see Star Wars from these other angles. Yeah. So I, I really dig the series. <laughs> uh, now, there was an article I read on IGN that talked to some of the creators and they did a number of them did base their stories on like certain points in the canon timeline, mm -hmm. like there's a story called The Elder, which involves two Jedi coming across a mysterious old man that is – the director said, oh, no, this is explicitly set before The Phantom Menace. Or there's a couple of stories – like there's one called The Twins, which is done by like the creators of Kill La Kill, and it has very much that – animation style so it's like just ridiculously gonzo but not to be mistaken with studio gonzo which is different <laughs> but uh it's just like a very over-the-top style but that one they said oh no this one is based like 
after Rise of Skywalker. Or there's another one that is set, like, well, at, like, in the future, like, yeah. many generations future of the Star Wars universe. Um, but then there's one that's set, like, the second story called Tatooine Rhapsody is set, like, with, like, Jabba and uh, Boba Fett are there in their canani- their canonical roles. So it's, like, it's set before Return of the Jedi. Yeah. So... Are any um, of them a Christmas so, yeah, episode? So yeah, you get no so you, Christmas episodes. <laughs> no, it's 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 <laughs> no no Christmas episode. But yeah, there like there are some series that set episodes. Uh, the very or like episode eight is specifically set as the as the Empire is taking over from what was once the Republic. Yeah, yeah. So like there are episodes where it's like you can see that. They fit in the timeline, but because of the trappings and the things that have been applied to them, they are not part of the canon. But they bar some of them more so than others. Like some of them could fit in. Sure, there were a number sure. of stories where, like, I could absolutely see this as a Star Wars story that we just haven't seen covered. And then there are some that are very ob- obviously we've taken thematic inspiration from Star Wars. But we've put a very distinctly Japanese mm-hmm. twist on it. And as someone who's getting ready to run a Star Wars role playing campaign, like I, there were some of these were like, oh, I could see a whole campaign of this one, or this would be a neat story to run. Yeah. Like there were a few of them, like, like even Tatooine Rhapsody, which because it's the second episode, and and Richard has seen it, so I I don't feel bad about spoiling it because Dennis, forget it, you don't have Disney Plus, so I don't feel bad about you. I don't. <laughs> I, I love you, Dennis, but <laughs> um, it involves like a a Padawan who was escaping the Jedi purge, and like he fell and broke his his lightsaber, but he fell into like the van of a traveling like rock band, and so he, to stay kind of like kind of under the cover he's taken up the role of being the lead singer for this band and so it's like him and a hut get like a hut guitarist and uh they have a droid they have a like a yeah. robot like there's yeah they have a droid they have like some three-bodied red-skinned alien playing drums and it's like I looked at that and the fact that it definitely fits within like the canonical timeline and has all the trappings of being a canonical story. That's one that does not lean heavily into Japanese imagery. And I was like, I could see that being like an entire Edge of the Empire campaign where you're yeah. like, you're just playing this traveling band getting caught up mm-hmm. in like weird underworld shenanigans because of your past connections. Yeah. Yep. So there are a few stories in there that are like what I would say is very good star Wars stories. And then there are a few that are just like, we are taking the trappings of star Wars and telling something new and interesting. And yes, none of them are canonical. I didn't like all of them. There's a, there's probably like three or there's probably about a third of them that just didn't click for me either because of the animation style or I didn't feel the storytelling really really worked for me but at the same time there are three or four that i thought were really really good and inspiring and what i've also found interesting is of course like as soon as these came out a bunch of media types you know watched them all and like here's our here's our ranking from best to least you know better from (laughs) worst to best or best to worst of like all nine star wars visions episodes and what i thought was cool None of those lists were in remotely the same order. Right. 
So no, and balance. like even like lists were like, oh, this episode is clearly the best. Then the next list would be like, nah, that one's fair to middling or no, that one didn't work for me at all. Everybody's going to take something different from this. Everybody's going to like different things. And that is the nature of an anthology series. Is, and I think that's that's the a sign that you've done an anthology right, is if it all feels like no one thing is the best. It's some. It's all going to be very subjective. Yeah. Although clearly the ninth Jedi is probably the best story. I mean, I think that's Just fair, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the ninth Jedi. I will. I will spoil this much. It's the one that's set in the far, like the far future of the Star Wars universe, and I think it's the one story of all of them that, like, really could stand on its own and spawn an entire like new storyline, yeah. film trilogy, etc. But uh, I would say if you if this is something that sounds like it at all interests you now, if you don't like anime, you've liked Star Wars, but you do not like anime, you will probably not enjoy this that much because it is very anime. Like it is definitely. I will I will say if you were if you were not necessarily like familiar with anime and you want to get like an on ramp into it, this is probably a really good thing for that because like i'm not a huge anime okay, fan that, yeah that's fair and like this was interesting to get in and get samples of like oh i like their style i like the stories they tell and like at the end like they tell you like what studio did it and all that stuff so like yeah i can go be like oh i really like this art style and the stories they tell let me go look what else what else they did um and i think it's it's kind of a, a, a an easy way into that larger world as well which can be uh can be very dense and very intimidating if you're not not already familiar with it Okay, that's that's no, that's fair. But if you do, if you've already decided you do not like anime, yeah. this probably won't change your mind. If you are a hardcore Star Wars purist, I would still give it a shot. But it probably like the non-canonical nature will probably irritate some people because there there are some fans that they want everything to fit neatly into canon. And if you are one of those people, this will not appeal to you either. But uh, if you just enjoy the trappings of Star Wars and you want to watch something a little bit different, uh, I would highly recommend it. And with that, we finish up episode 246. Uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with uh, something new to talk about. We've got no new codexes on the horizon, so we'll find another topic. Uh, we'll get a few more games in and uh, we'll have we'll have fun and we'll talk about something interesting because that's talking about the things we want to talk about is what we do. So from all of us here at Preferred Enemies, I'm your host, Rob. Kevin. Dennis. And Richard. Good night, good gaming, and uh, remember, ninth edition will just keep getting better the more we play it. Preferred Enemies is an Undergopher Radio production and is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 Unported License. Our theme music is Metal Slug 2 Super Vehicle 001-2, No Need to Reload, originally by Takushi Hayamuda and remixed by Roataka, courtesy of OC Remix. It can be found at ocremix.com.